0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geberer with another episode before we start just been a while that I read any mail, so I'll just share with you another couple of um, thoughts, questions, and discussions that are going in the wider Jewish history soundbites community. Here's a good one. Just received it recently. I quote uh, Yehuda. I want to tell you how much I'm thoroughly enjoying your podcast. Okay, that part is not 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 that important. Truly excellent and amazing stuff. Wow. Okay, I had a question for you after listening to this episode called Operation Reinhard, which is quite a while ago. Parenthetically, open parentheses, um, that podcast, that episode was posted uh, near Tisha I think. So this is from quite a while ago, just to bring back that recall. Going back to what this fellow is writing, I quote, When you discuss the death camps... You don't include Auschwitz. Why is that? Why isn't Auschwitz considered a death camp? And that is an excellent question. A few people asked it. I actually thought that... um, That's the end of the letter, by the way. Uh, I thought that much more people would ask it. And the reason I didn't include it, and that's why I want to clarify it, because it's probably going to be a a common question for those who listen to that episode... Um, The reason I didn't include it in that episode is simply because um, Auschwitz is kind of in a category in its own. Number one, Auschwitz was not exclusively a death camp. As we all know, there are many survivors of Auschwitz, and uh, there you go. It can't be a death camp if there's a lot of survivors, and that's because there was also a concentration camp at Auschwitz. So... Auschwitz is one of those rare places that was a dual purpose. It was both a death camp and a concentration camp. In fact, one of the most remembered features of Auschwitz illustrates that dual purpose. One of the most remembered uh, by the survivors and in the storybooks about Auschwitz is the selectia, the selection. If it was a exclusively a concentration camp, there would be no selection. Everyone came there to work. And of course, if it was one of the death camps like Treblinka, There's also no selection everyone is there to be gassed so Auschwitz is definitely in its own category in that regard Um, even the even if we would just focus on the death camp part of Auschwitz it still would be different because Auschwitz was never considered part of Operation Reinhardt the official program of the extermination of Polish Jewry which was the subject of that episode and therefore it's in its own its own category so perhaps next year around of time when we're again talking about destruction and death and korban we'll go back to the auschwitz story okay next uh hi i enjoyed a I quote again I, I enjoyed your last episode i'm surprised you didn't mention the munkatsa who went from being the heir to the minhas Salazar to a full-fledged Zionist rabbi after the war. End quote. You're right, um, and I'll try to get to him in a future episode. Okay, next. He continues. It's the same letter. Also, I think there was a bit of revisionism going on in Bells after the war, where they retroactively moderated Rabbi Sachar Doiv's position and claimed that he wasn't really that opposed to agudis Yisroel but rather felt that there needs to be someone on the outside to correct their positions if they stray, and felt like that was his role. End of letter. Um, And that is a very, very important topic of when uh, later circumstances caused uh, great leaders to change their positions, so they felt like they they had apologized for it, and then, therefore, there's a lot of revisionism. Revisionism, excuse me, that goes on to try to uh, um, make it that is as if it's not so drastic of a change. It's not only in regards to Zionism; it's pretty much everything that goes on in society. And by the way, it's not limited to religious Jews writing history. It's pretty much every culture and society in the world. Um, we tend to write history, um, you know, uh, less. You know, the, in, in classic writing of history, there's a lot of uh, movement towards uh, revising the past to fit with the current, uh, the current events, to fit with the value systems and the educational values that exist in the present and, and what we want to educate for the future. So It's a, really a huge topic in itself, historical revisionism, which I definitely don't want to get into. Specifically with the story of Bells, there's definitely a lot of revisionism that's going on Bells. It's going on in a lot of rabbinical positions about uh, Zionism. Look, the Lubavitcher Rebbe definitely changed uh, Chabad's view on Zionism, and, uh, which, is, which is definitely you know, an important uh, topic. What was the Lubavitcher Rebbe's position on Zionism, which is an interesting position. But it definitely wasn't the same as the Rashab of Chabad, who was very extremely anti-Zionist. So there's always going to be that friction between the past and the present, and how do we match the two. As it happens in the story of Bells, and this is why I'm devoting a little bit of time to this letter, is that the source of this is not so revisionist. The source of this is a letter written by the ger on on after he came back from his first trip to Eretz Yisrael in 1921, and he writes in that letter that, we have that letter, we have the originals, it's, uh, it's not a made-up letter, um, that he says that he wanted to convince the Rebbe Rabbi Socher Daiv, right? He writes that he was going to stop in Munkach to visit the Rebbe Rabbi Socher Daiv, that's the period of time that the Rebbe Rabbi Socher Daiv Bells lived in Munkach, which is also a great story of his legendary uh, disputes with the Minchasalazar of of for another time, but um, he decided not to because he heard that the Rebbe Rebbe Socher Dei's position about being opposed to Aguris Yisrael is not that he is so opposed, but rather he feels that there should be someone on the outside to keep them in check. That's what the Rebbe writes in the letter. So it's not completely made up. Um, or a visionist, as this, this uh, letter writer wrote, and therefore there is room to say that the Rebbe Rabbi position wasn't as extreme against the Guru Israel as some of the other Rebbes of Galicia or Hungary of his time. That's all for the letters for this time. We're now going to move straight in to today's topic, which is very interesting, the up- upcoming Rosh Hashanah, and we know that all over Hasidim are running to their rebbes for Rosh Hashanah. There's a large movement uh, all over the world, and uh, I remember my Rebbe Rabash Arieli in the Miri Yeshiva was a very, very, um, very, very strict about not leaving the Zman early. No one was ever allowed to leave early, not that people didn't, but officially with his permission, they weren't allowed to leave early. And the only time he ever gave permission to a boy to leave this Zman early was if he was a chassid in the shir, going to be by his Rebbe for Rosh Hashanah. So in Chassidus, there's a lot of significance attached to the to the going to the Rebbe for Rosh Hashanah. And in fact, on all the trips that, I, that we take with groups, that's one of the discussions when we're on the road, and you're always on the road for hours and hours and hours on the trips. And you're going from one place to the other. So inevitably, at some point in the discussion... We start to talk on the bus about how we're going on the roads where the Hasidim, when they would go to the Rebbe for Rosh Hashanah, when they would go to the Rebbe for Yantif, they would go on these very roads. And then obviously it would come up. Uh, so why did they go? And what was the reason? And what was it like? What was the experience? So we'll talk a little bit about that being that it's uh, coming up to Rosh Hashanah. So. Which yom tovim did they go in? In the collective memory, and it's true till today, Rosh Hashanah is one of the main ones that people went. Um, Shavuos is a big one. Shabbos Chanukah is a big one. It depends on the Hasidus. It happens to be in Ger, it was always Shavuos and Rosh Hashanah. In uh, in um, in other Hasiduses, it was different. The other yom tovim. Sometimes Simchas Torah was a big one. Sometimes Shabbos Hanukkah was the main one. And uh, in the altar, alter reb I mentioned in the last episode, he spelled out in the Tachonis that he wrote for his Hasidim, which Shabbosim throughout the year they're allowed to come. And in fact, Shavuos in, in Chabad till today is called the one of the nicknames of Shavuos is Chag HaMotsim, meaning Mots of Moiret Sedek, like the Rav of the town. The Rabbanim would go to Labavich back in Russia on Shavuos because the other yamim the Rabbanim had to stay with, even if they were Hasidim of the Lubavitcher Rabbis, they had to stay with their town to answer the Halachic Shailas. But on shvuas, there's not that many Halachic Shailas that, that rise because of the Yontif. There's not that many uh, issues that come up. So therefore, the Rabbanim would all come to Lubavitch for shvuas. So it became to be known as the Chag HaMotsim. So... Um, Interestingly enough, the, the, in the Litvisha world, there was also the idea of, uh, they didn't call it Ali al-Regel and going to the Rebbe, but to, in the Yeshiva world, the Litvisha Yeshiva world, in the generation before the war, in places like Slabatka and especially the Mir, there many alumni of the Yeshiva would come for El and rejoin the Yeshiva, or at least for Yamam Nehraim to come to the Yeshiva, and the, uh, population of the Yeshiva would be augmented for that period of time, some would come for Simchas Simhastyira. In fact, um, I heard I heard once a, it was a yard site gathering for a Baron cutler in Arerel and the one who spoke as many years ago about 20 years ago or so. And the one who one of the guest speakers was a Belzer Chassid, and he spoke his perfect English because he grew up in either Williamsburg or the Bronx or one of those places in New York City of the time. And he, there, his father wanted him to stay from, and there was not that much opportunity for young boys to stay from in those days. To stay, and there was almost no yeshivas. So he sent him to a Litvish yeshiva, even though they were Belzer Chasidim, which was quite rare, especially during the 1950s in the time of Rabar and Cutler. And he said that he went to yeshiva for Simchas Torah because to be in the lake where Yeshiva for Simchas Teirah was something special, was something unique, was something you didn't want to miss. And when he came back, came back to Williamsburg and all his friends are Chassidim and they all went to different Rebbes. There was no shortage of great, great Rebbes in Brooklyn during that period of time, especially in Williamsburg. And everyone's discussing, By which Rebbe were you, which Rebbe did you go to the Akafes on Simchas Taira? And he was all ashamed. He was by a Litvak and he didn't know what to say. So he told us that he fought quickly and he said to his friends, I was by the Kletzke Rebbe. And that was his, uh, his answer for that. So therefore there was definitely an idea of going up by to the yeshiva by in the Litvish world as well, but it definitely was more famous in the Hasidic world of going to the Rebbe. They went for both, the main thing was of course the spiritual uplift, they went to be by the Rebbe, to daven with him, to speak to him, to get maybe before Yontif or during Yontif a Yechidas, a private session with him to get a bracha for the new year if it was Rosh Hashanah, uh, to the davening, the uplift of the davening and of course on a spiritual and mystical plane the, the, to be able to daven with the Rebbe means that the Chassid believed that his tefillahs, his davening would be more accepted and and more, more meaningful, but it's interesting that we also see a lot of record that there was a social aspect of it. You know, they, they felt like they were part of a greater community, and when they came together, and the the somehow the rebbe and the davening at certain at a certain point was a means to an end of feeling a part of a larger community. And there's definitely a very strong social aspect of it that they came together. And they fared and they saw their friends they hadn't seen since the year before or half a year before, and they and they talked and they and and, and, and when they go home through the mud and through the snow and uh, of of Poland and Russia and through the long cold winter and many of them living through poverty and hard life in Tsarist Russia, but they know they're part of something bigger and that definitely gave them a lot of warmth and a lot of strength. So it had. A very strong social aspect, aside from the spiritual. Now, who came? Uh, generally, in the history of Hasidism, was mostly older Hasidim. Throughout the history of Hasidism, it was predominantly male Hasidim. It was almost never uh, were the women included in that, but um, there were exceptions, especially for the young, young men. Young men, uh, the old, as as times. In modern times, especially today, the post-war, but even in the pre-war, in Ger, for instance, the young Hasidim were welcomed in as well. On the, on, in, if we mentioned Ger already, one of the main uh, stories of pre-war Polish Jewry was the was the Ger Hasidus, of course, and, and, and there's so much to talk about in Ger. There's the Svas Emes as a person and his life and his leadership and his Torah. And then, of course, his son, the Imre m s the Babram Mordechai uh, of Ger. And then there's the Hasidis in general. And, but now, I'll leave that for future episodes. But now I just want to focus on the going to Ger for, uh, for Rosh Hashanah, for Yantif, And um, the idea was to be with the Rebbe, that, that you're with the Rebbe, the Rebbe knows who you are. They would come there, there would be long lines to wait to speak to the Rebbe. There's sometimes wait, I've heard... Uh, for five to six hours, just to be able to speak. you know, talking about a massive Hasidus, numbered in the hundreds of thousands. Probably we don't have exact numbers. And, um, and, and each and every one got individual guidance, got, uh, got a message. He got to tell the Rebbe where he's holding, what his questions are, any advice. And he got a very concise, sharp and short, sometimes very sharp, sometimes he told them something you know something that they that, that they had to improve and work on, and or he would notice that they're lax about things or that their Yiddishkeit could not use some improvement, and that 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 was their personal meeting with the with the Rebbe. They would sometimes go afterwards to the Rebbe's brother, R. Moshe to and repeat what the Rebbe said, so that R. Bitzal would be able to explain and elaborate on what the Rebbe meant. Now it's interesting and it, it, it the idea of that that the, that that you have the the rebbe's closeness and the rebbe's warmth and his advice guiding you throughout the year it goes both ways one time the the uh the came to the Ger-Rebbe and he said i'm going to be going to paris for a business trip and the rebbe says to him okay the rebbe the Emes, the Ger-Rebbe was a big cigar smoker he liked cigars he would smoke pretty often and, uh, and the appreciated good cigars. And they asked him, so can you pick up some good, nice, expensive cigars in Paris? I'll give you some money. Don't forget, I need these and these cigars. When you're in Paris, there's a few stores that sell it. Please don't forget that I asked you for these cigars. So the Chassid uh, goes to Paris, and he's so busy with his business and everything else that he's doing, he forgets to buy the cigars. He feels all bad. He feels terrible. He, he, uh, you know, he didn't follow his Rebbe's instruction and he didn't get him the cigars. So he comes back and he looks through, he combs Warsaw from top to bottom and he finds one like high end store that sells Paris fancy cigars for a large amount of money, much more than what they sell for them in Paris for. But he's able to find a box of cigars and he comes to the Rebbe. And he says to the Rebbe, Elisha, no, I forgot all about it. I completely slipped my mind. I'm really sorry, but I was able to find in Warsaw your cigars. And the Rebbe says, you fool. And the Rebbe, again, he was very sharp and very short. He says, you think I needed your cigars? I know how to get cigars. And whenever I need my cigars, I know how to find them. He said, I wanted you to remember me while you're in Paris. And if you're busy buying cigars for me, you'd be thinking about the Rebbe. And that's the connection that this that this enables, the going up to Yontif, that, that, that uh, connection. So the idea that in, in Ger, though, what developed was, especially in the interwar period, was that the actual going to the Rebbe became part of the experience. And this is the very famous story of the Kulaike. The, the Kulaike was the train line, the Polish train company ran a train line from Warsaw, the big city, to the suburb of Ger, Gora, Calabria. Was the polish name and in, in yiddish they called it ger it was a suburb south of warsaw and there was this polish company the polish train company had a train line that went there and and the hasidim nicknamed it the kulike the polish word for train or train company was something along that word and this meant this form of the word was like a small or cute little train the like or and that, and that's what it meant. This is the little train. It was actually, I think, it was a thinner track. It was, it was wasn't a major commercial line. It was a small, a small uh, train, and and um, and the Polish train company made it specifically for Hasidim to go to the Rebbe because it was very profitable. Uh, they they actually timed it according to the Ger Rebbe's Kabolas Kahal when he received Hasidim. They timed the train schedule for that time. And before Shabbos, and especially before Yontif, they had many, many more trains running from Warsaw to Ger. And uh, not only that, but it became the most profitable line in the entire Polish railroad system in the interwar period. And not only that, but after the war, they they canceled that line, meaning there was no reason. to. Everyone was murdered in Cherblinka, in the gas chambers. There was no one left of the Polish Hasidim after the war. And therefore, there was no re- reason for them to keep that train line going. And it stopped. So the Kulaika was the way. And every time I have a trip and we go from Warsaw to Gare and we go on that same road that thousands of Hasidim went, especially in the interwar period when it was tens of thousands of Hasidim. And we go in a bus, of course, and I tell the group, we're in the Kulaika. We're on the way to Gare. Think about what it must have been like. And I start telling stories about the Kulaika. And eventually the Hasidim remembered after the war was that the Kulaika itself became the experience because everyone on the on the train, almost everyone was Hasidim going to the Rebbe. And there would be train cars full of people learning, many of them learning dafyaimi, which was the new and in thing at the time. Many of them would be Davening, there would be Minyanim, there would there was kosher food available there was singing, there were people getting excited, they're getting close, they're leaving, they're out of Warsaw, they're out of the big city, they're on the way down to the suburb, they're getting closer to the Rebbe, closer to the Yontif. they got excited, they would dance, they would sing in the Kulaika. I interviewed a Hasid uh, uh, about a year ago, he was over 100 years old, and he told me he was uh, a member of one of the smaller Polish Hasidus at that time, And he, but he lived in the Warsaw area. And his friends who were Gera Hasidim said, you don't have to come to Gera to go to the Gera River. We're not trying to convert you. Come on the Kulaika just to go on the Kulaika, just to see what it's like and experience it. And he did. And the way he described it at that time was it was like the most uh, amazing and beautiful experience of Hasidim coming together, going up to the Rebbe on the train. He, um, He... the uh, on on the Kulaika when they would pass one of the other other suburbs of Warsaw was Piazetzna, immediately south of Warsaw. And uh, before the Piazetzna Rebbe, the Kodesh, the Klinimus Kalman Shapiro, before he moved to Warsaw itself, he lived in Piazetzna, and the Hasidim, many Piazetzna Hasidim would come on the Kulaika and get off one stop earlier at Piazetzna. And the Gera Hasidim with their elitism, and knowing that they're going to Ger, to the Imre Ames, they would look at the piet see getting off the train, and they would say, nu, nu, it's also nice to go to Piazzetzna, but we're going to Ger, we know where it's really at. And that was um, a very much um, a, 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 an amazing part of the experience of going up to the Rebbe. So perhaps we'll talk more about that at another opportunity. So this was Yehuda Geberer, with Jewish History Soundbites, and I can be reached at ygebss at gmail.com. Questions, comments, sources, and trips. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and follow us at twi- on Twitter at jsoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.